Welcome to Climate Optimists. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd DeShida. And I'm Thomas Mills. This week, we're going to be talking about the world of aviation, its climate impacts, and the solutions needed to bring it to zero emissions. Before we uh, kick off today's discussion, I wanted to announce that here at Climate Optimist, we will be uh, taking a spring break the last two weeks of March. And, you know, I think I'm going to probably do a little skiing, a little yard work. Uh, Todd, I assume you're taking your uh, annual trip down to Cancun or? I don't know what the hell you're (laughs) talking about, about spring break. Spring break? What are you, in high school? No, I don't get a spring break. I mean, I'm gonna. You know what I'm gonna be doing? Spring break. I'm gonna be working. <laughs> spring break, Cancun. Thomas, do you get a spring break or what? Uh, not, not, not the uh, Cancun style. Well, at least not that I've observed. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I miss those days of spring break. I suppose I got well, a kid growing up, so I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You're gonna be able to take advantage. Yeah, of I'll soon. be having uh, spring break. Will be a thing in my life, I guess, coming up at some point. Yeah, that's a brilliant excuse. You got to leverage that. I mean, that's one of the. It's one of those benefits of parenting. Like you don't want to miss out on that. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> so last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, released their latest installment of their sixth climate change assessment, and not too surprisingly. Not a very happy story. Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, called it a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. And while you know the headlines may make you want to curl up in the fetal position, I I do still think there are some hopeful hopeful pieces from all of it. So let's get the depressing shit out of the way. The world has already warmed by 1.1 degrees Celsius, according to the report. They're now on the order of 3.3 billion people that are now highly vulnerable to climate change. And as some may already know, those, those most vulnerable folks are the least responsible for climate change. And the other thing the report talked about is the fact that we're seeing more, they call like compounding effects where you have high temperatures combined with, let's say low precipitation. And then you end up with a much worse, let's say drought than you otherwise would have. For me, those were kind of the high points in terms of the the bad news. I think pivoting to more of the hopeful news, there is still time to act. Like It's absolutely not too late for us. And every fraction of warming matters. So whether we're talking about 1.1 degrees or 1.5 or 1.6, everything matters in terms of reducing risk. And the other thing they point out is really in this next decade, this is our chance to decide which direction we want to go. You know, if we act swiftly and take robust action, it puts us on that lower risk trajectory, right? There's still going to be problems, but we're going to be in a much better space. For me, the takeaway is really solving climate change is doable, but it's going to require all of us. You know, it's not something where we can have people sitting on the sidelines because the reality is if everything, everybody gets involved that cares, it's going to drive the political change that we need. Gents, uh, I don't know. You have thoughts? Yeah. Look, I think Jason, it's it's a bit of a, a stark reminder as you read through it about all the climate disasters that we've seen already, and the fact that this is only going to continue to get supercharged as um, as we continue to delay our response. But at the same time, I think we need to not take it as a you know, piece of demoralizing literature, but more as a kick in the rump to 
hurry up. We need to go and do the right thing. We know what we need to do now. We, we just need to execute. Yeah, I agree. And I like that. I, we'll use From now on, Todd and I will use kicking the rump instead of kicking the butt when we're talking about the need to get going on stuff. It feels more classy, doesn't it? I mean, a kick in the rump versus a kick in the butt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny, a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. All of these reports that, that seem to keep coming out, it's all a lot of the same story, right? Is I mean, maybe it's like one of those things where you have to keep telling people things multiple times before it finally sinks in. I think to your point about hope in the next generation, you know, like even here in Portland, I just saw that basically student-driven forced you know portland public schools to accept a climate plan it just is a good sign too that the, obviously the next generation they're thinking about this and they're on top of this i agree and I, and i think you know ironically in many ways the you know students children are taking a leadership role mm-hmm. when you know many adults have yet to sort of step up so maybe we need to take our cue from all these kids who aren't waiting to feel like they have the talking points or you know worrying about you know, carving out time, they're just doing it. And I think that's what we all need to do. And and if we do, I have no doubt that we're going to drive the type of response that's needed to get us where we need to be. So moving from one, you know, cheery topic to another, this week's reason for hope actually comes from the hard to watch situation in, in Ukraine. I, you know, I know there's at least personally, like feeling a lot of like mix of like anger and fear and anxiety about it. But I think the the conflict does create an opportunity for the for the EU, which you know gets forty percent of its natural gas from Russia, to use this as a as a way to accelerate their transition to renewable energy and away from fossil fuels. The International Energy Agency actually released kind of a ten point plan that talks about that and lays out really a roadmap for the European Union to cut its reliance on Russian gas 30% within a year. And a lot of that comes from accelerating, you know, wind and solar, maximizing bioenergy and nuclear, you know, ramping up energy efficiency, conserving energy. So while the conflict itself is is a terrible thing, when looking through a climate lens, I think it's just, it's an opportunity to accelerate us away from these fossil fuels that are going to continue to create these geopolitical issues. Obviously, there's there's some market you know, forces and things that are very complicated that make this thing very difficult. But I think the simple thing is if there is no market or <laughs> the market is very small, it doesn't make it as big of a deal, right? And, and it is a big deal because the market for all this stuff is huge. Totally. Well, let's, let's hop into today's topic, aviation. And I know, as a lot of us are, you know, being climate conscious, it's easy to feel guilty when you're, you know, contemplating hopping on an airplane these days. And, you know, a single international flight can have a big, you know, carbon impact. So, Thomas, as a a pilot and somebody who's more familiar with aviation than the two of us, how should we be thinking about kind of the efficiency of flying compared to, say, driving or other modes of transportation? Yeah, look, I mean... It depends how you look at it. If you're looking at it from getting an individual from A to B, it can be relatively efficient if you're comparing running a vehicle on fossil fuels versus an aircraft. But from a transporting a weight perspective, yeah, it's relatively terrible. Um, that's why 
you know, ground-based freight or sea freight is typically you know, you know, orders of magnitude cheaper per kilogram moved than, than air. And that's driven primarily by the basic laws of physics. Um, when we hop in an aeroplane, we expect to fly near the speed of sound between continents. And in doing that, you know, the, the drag is significantly higher. You put your hand out the window of a vehicle at 20 miles an hour and you feel the wind force against it and then you start doing 100 miles an hour and it's significant. Every time you double the velocity, the drag's gone up by four times and power requirement by eight. So it's expensive um, from an energy perspective. There's no doubt about it. So I, I think the, the important thing to keep in mind that a person traveling in a you know, medium to long haul flight is going to use about the same amount of energy per mile covered um, as, as, as a person driving a, a relatively efficient car, a single person driving that efficient car. If you go and put five people in that vehicle, then yes, it's going to be significantly more, more uh, fuel efficient to travel via ground-based transit. So that kind of gets at the idea of like, not just thinking about miles per gallon, but thinking sort of about miles per gallon per passenger, right? Like, in other words, if you pack a, a plane full, the same is true, right? You The plane has a certain fuel efficiency, but if you fill it full of passengers, obviously that miles per gallon per passenger is better. And then if I'm understanding you right, the same would be true, right, with a car. So if you have a car that gets, let's say, 40 miles to gallon, that may not be as good as an average, you know, medium to long haul flight at say over 50. But if you put all of a sudden four people in that car, then you're doing much better. So let's get to our guest today. Michael Wolcott is a Regents Professor and Associate Vice President of Research at Washington State University, where he's been a member of the faculty since 1996, conducting research in the field of bio-based materials, chemicals, and fuels. He currently serves as the Director of Ascent, the FAA's Center of Excellence for Alternative Jet Fuel and the Environment, and was formerly project co-director of the Northwest Advanced Renewables Alliance. Well, Mike, welcome to uh, Climate Optimists. Thanks. Appreciate being here today. Well, let's start with a question that we ask all our guests. When you think about efforts to address climate change, what, what makes you hopeful? You know, Jason, I, I think for a lot of this, it, it's easy to get discouraged about, you know, our climate emissions and what kind of climate change is going to happen. Most of the news we see in about this topic is, is fairly negative. Um, it can even be classified as catastrophic in certain cases of this. Right. And obviously, it's something that we need to worry about. It's a, it, it's, it, it is an incredibly important existential crisis. But I think what makes me most hopeful is, despite the differences of opinion that, that people have about this topic, um, I've seen continued progress through different administrations and uh, you know things that get us further down the line as we've been working on this for a long time. And so while the progress may not be as fast as we want it to be, may not be as fast as we need it to be. It really is uh, making progress. And I think what's most encouraging is, is that uh, the way that we're seeing absolute change oftentimes is not through government regulation, but is actually through the change in the marketplace. And we see this uh, definitely 
with respect to just meeting the Obama era goals in terms of reduction of coal generated electricity, um, even though that was uh, overruled in many cases by the Supreme Court. Uh, we've actually made those targets already, and it, and it didn't take the regulation to get there. And uh, what we're seeing also is we're seeing companies like Microsoft and others that are really sort of taking their carbon footprint and their sustainability tenants seriously, and they're actually changing their business models to go forward with that. Um, so I'm, I'm really encouraged uh, that we're going to get to there. I have no idea in the crystal ball if we're going to make the IPCC targets in terms of things, but um, we just have to keep working on it. Yeah. Well, and I, I like your point about things taking place or change happening despite, you know, maybe not having certain regulations in place that, you know, it's just the recognition that there will be regulation at some point or the potential regulation that helps, you know, drive business in, in the direction that we want to go. Yeah. And that's not to say that policy is not needed. In fact, uh, when we'll, you know, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about this a little bit later, but policy is really crucial to our making change. It's probably more the fact that, you know, policy isn't always stable. And despite the fact that it's it, that we've seen a good deal of instability in a number of these policy areas, we're continuing to see progress. So, yeah. So thinking about, you know, aviation, why, you know, why are addressing carbon emissions more challenging than, you know, other transportation sectors? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question because, um, you know, transportation as a whole makes up a, a, a majority of our carbon emissions, you know, in the United States. Uh, aviation contributes roughly 12% of the carbon emissions of the transportation sector itself, around 3% to total U.S. Uh, carbon emissions. You know, so A, why should we even focus on aviation? Because it's 3% of our carbon emissions in the United States. So there's a, there's a lot larger ones in there. And why should we pay so much attention to that? So I think if we focus on the transportation areas for this, um, we have solutions that are moving forward commercially right now with light duty vehicle fleets. So the, so the, so the cars that you and I drive every day to get to the things that we need to do, we see electrification really sort of taking root. So um, that has to continue and probably isn't going fast enough. But from my perspective, that ship has sailed. But the question with flight and aviation is that there are two major components that make it a very difficult to decarbonize sector. One is the amount of energy that's required simply to have flight, to take flight, is very substantial. I mean, if you take a, a common long-haul flight, and you look at just the takeoff and landing portion to that, that's a third of the overall fuel burn that takes place. Wow. And, and, and that's because, you know, getting, you know, an aircraft, a commercial aircraft, 737 or larger off the ground, fully loaded and into a sustained flight, you know, takes a lot of energy. And that energy has two primary criteria. One is that's part of the payload of the, of the flight itself, right? So the, so the aircraft needs to carry that fuel and it needs to carry it in a fairly limited volume space. So the power requirements for those are substantial. But then secondly, is that, you know, if, if we take a flight from Portland and you're going to land in Spokane, Washington, you might do that because of convenience. It's not sure. really a necessity to do that, you, you know, because you could drive up a little bit of a long drive, but you could easily do that. And so it's more convenient for you to take that flight. You might be able to fit it in, in a day instead of overnight. But 
you're not going to make a decision to drive from Portland to New York City or to Washington, D.C. for a meeting because it might take you three days or four days just to get there and then the same thing right. coming back. So so what happens is, is, is a lot of the commercial flight activity is really for these long haul flights. And it's that we travel so much further with aviation than we do with other um, modes of transportation. And so it's really important to understand that these issues with aviation, not only are the power requirements and those sorts of components, but actually the distance of which we fly. That's helpful. And so if I'm understanding you correctly, I mean, not only is it a have massive energy requirements in a fairly small space in which to store that energy, you know, in this case, fuel, but it's also that, you know, if we were driving from, you know, Portland to let's say New York city, you'd be making lots and lots of stops along the way to fill up your, you know, the fuel tank of your vehicle where in a flight, you don't have that option, right? You, you've got to take all the exactly. fuel that you need on board and, you know, that has to get you from, from A to B. That's right. Exactly. So you've, you've kind of, I think, hinted at this already with the answer to your previous question, but how do, you know, emissions shake out there? In other words, do the short flights, given that there's more of them, make up a fairly large share or are the long flights, even though there's fewer, the, the bulk of the emissions? Yeah. So um, definitely long haul flights, medium haul flights are the, the, the vast majority of the emissions from the aviation industry. It's not that these regional flights or shorter ones don't play a role, um, but they're much, much uh, lower amounts of the ga- greenhouse gas emissions than the long haul flights. Um, you know, that's just because of the cumulative miles that exist within there, right? On top of that, the um, smaller planes like a Dash 8 is actually a more uh, efficient plane that exists in there. Part of it is because it's a turboprop rather than a, a jet engine on there. It flies at a lower airspeed than does a, a, a commercial jet does, and it can because it's a shorter flight and it's just a lighter aircraft overall. So it's kind of interesting if you go on to not advertising Google flights uh, on there to right. your tickets, but <laughs> but if you go on to there, actually, they'll show a carbon emission for that flight underneath there. And you can look at a Portland to Spokane flight, let's say, and you'll see actually two levels of carbon emissions. And one of those is a is a jet aircraft and the other one is a turboprop. I can't vouch for how accurate they are, but the relative you know nature of that is is fairly representative. It's one of the reasons why we see Horizon, our local airline for regional flights, uh, fly a lot of Dash 8s because they're really efficient and that efficiency translates into less fuel expenses. So when we're talking emissions, the longer flights make up a bigger share. And, you know, among the shorter flights, the aircraft that are available are more efficient. So that's another sort of benefit in terms of reducing overall emissions. Well, and I guess leads to kind of the next question, which is like, what are the most promising solutions out there for for cutting emissions? Yeah, so so the aviation industry looks at this on a multi-pronged basis. So there's really three major components to that. One is the actual operations of the flight themselves. So how fast you fly, what elevations you fly, what are the directness of the routes? All of these types of of factors influence sort of fuel burn as a whole. So that's one component that can be addressed is just simply the operations. Then next is um, actual aircraft technologies themselves and those that are aimed particularly at reduction of fuel burn. And these two fuel burn pieces are so important because everybody wins for that, right? Because, you know, in terms of the airlines, you know, 60 
percent of their operating expenses are purchasing fuel. So if they, yeah, so if they um, reduce the amount of fuel that's needed, then then they save money. They could pass off savings to us as passengers. So um, we've seen a continued efficiency improvement in the air fleet with time. As a passenger, maybe the most visible thing for that is probably somewhere, I don't know exactly when it was, maybe 15 years ago, you started seeing those little winglets on the end of the wings, right? The little vertical um, pieces to that. Uh, that was those are actually put on there to reduce fuel burn. So there's many other technologies that that you don't see so much or maybe not so obvious as a passenger. Uh, we see a lot of lightweighting of the aircraft themselves, a lot more use of composites. We really saw this come forward in the Boeing 787. What those composites also did was allow much longer wings. So if you fly on one, you'll notice that the wingspan is much longer for the width of the wing. So it's a higher aspect ratio, which are much more efficient. So we see, you know, actual shapes of the aircraft themselves that change or the, just the weight of the aircraft itself. We also see material changes in the engine so that the engines can uh, uh, burn more efficiently. So what we see is these uh, cumulative, all these technology changes can really sort of assist in terms of just reduction of fuel burn itself. And then greenhouse gas emissions are basically proportional to the fuel burn. So those two are, are two pieces that the aircraft manufacturers, um, engine manufacturers, all of these are working hard on. And FAA is really looking at in terms of operational things that they control from a regulatory basis. The last part, though, is really lowering the greenhouse gas intensity of the fuel itself. And, right. um, and, and, and this is, you know, despite the, um, the importance of those other two factors, this is really going to be the major component that, that helps to get the aviation industry to a net zero standpoint. So IATA, which is the International Aviation Transport Association, so it covers the entire aviation industry. In their goals of setting to get the net zero, they estimate that roughly 65 to 70% of the carbon savings that they're going to need to get to a a net zero basis is going to come from the production of sustainable aviation fuels. So aviation fuels that simply have lower carbon intensity because of how they're made. And um, largely that's getting um, away from conventional fuels, which, which occur from fossil fuels. We also hear a lot about fuel switching in a different way, so that's moving from a conventional fuel to a sustainable aviation fuel. But the other way that we're look, we hear a lot in the news about more and more lately is switching to either hydrogen flight, the role that high, green hydrogen might play, or electrification. This gets a lot of press and news. It is actually uh, very promising, but it's not going to help us in the time frame we need to decarbonize aviation. So sustainable aviation fuels are going to be the major part. And these other ones are going to contribute, definitely. So as I'm thinking about this, you know, being a mechanical engineer, I'm, you know, quickly going to the car analogy. And so when you talked about those three buckets, I'm envisioning kind of the same sort of buckets with a car. You know, you you have the improvements in technology that make the car more efficient, like, you know, most people are familiar with with hybrid cars. You know, you have the way you drive the car. So obviously, you know, putting your foot to the floor is, is not going to generate as, as good a fuel, fuel economy. And then, yeah. and then the third is, you know, what are you putting into your, your fuel tank? And it sounds like in the aviation sector, that's really the crux at this point of getting to net zero is getting a fuel that you can put in your tank that is, 
you know, that is low or, or zero emissions. Right. And that's a really good analogy, uh, Jason, on there, because, um, you know, the, the auto industry is taking a lot of these similar types of steps in terms of, of reducing that. So exciting. So it's, you know, it seems like aviation is making a lot of incremental progress. I guess I'm curious, given how, you know, essential the fuel is to being able to decarbonize, you know, kind of where, where are we today? Right. So where we are with the production and use of sustainable aviation fuels right now is we have uh, seven certified pathways. So pathways that are certified by ASTM that then can be flown on commercial flights. So that's a huge step. Uh, we have a variety of different feedstocks that can be used through those pathways. So it's not all relying on on growing one type of material or or, or utilizing one waste source. The downside of this is that we have a fairly limited production compared to the overall fuel that we use. We do have commercial plants here in, in the United States. The one commercial plant is right outside of LAX. Uh, it's called oh, okay. World Energy. And we have two commercial plants that are in various stages of construction right now. One is actually in Oregon, down in Lakeview, Oregon. And Interesting. Uh, yeah, and the other one is in, is in Reno, Nevada. And then there are multiple sort of announcements or groups that are saying that they're going to be putting it in or that they already have production of, say, renewable diesel, which they can easily modify that process and produce sustainable aviation fuels. So there is a lot of, of promise, but we definitely need more in production. And so one of the one of the questions would be is, you know, why don't we have more in production right now? And there's really kind of two factors that play a role. You know, one of those factors is that there's a significant amount of capital that's required to build one of these plants. It's, it's hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, sort of to get into this business. And, and so, you know, getting access to that sort of capital on what's perceived to be a new technology just raises interest rates and because of risks associated with that. That leads to the other issue that's there is where government should and needs to play a role uh, within these sorts of issues that are important to society is in de-risking that private capital. So right. if there's a high risk associated with that, then that's the goal of our governments should be to, to take the risk out of the private capital, let the private capital build these plants and start commercial production, but take on the risk because you're going to have failures in any new technologies, right? There are a number of programs that are both state and federal to do that, but we haven't seen a tremendous amount of stability in those programs. Programs, especially on the federal side, will go up and down with administrations and, and, and priorities that they might have. So it's exciting to hear that there are fuels out there today, aviation fuels that are that are more sustainable. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, in this equation of of decarbonizing our aviation sector, where do, you know, where do carbon offsets fit? Yeah. So right now offsets are viewed as a component that bridges between the time of today and when we have substantial amounts of sustainable aviation fuel in place. But what's really important is to actually own those carbon emissions that you actually have. So so offsets shouldn't replace these other technologies to improve fuel burn, to, to lower the carbon intensity of the fuel itself. Those are important to go forward. But if we're going to start to decarbonize right now, then we need to, then the, the, the industry 
view sort of investing in these offsets as a way to offset their carbon emissions until they have these other technologies that are put in place. But what's also really important is to make sure that these are, are real and verifiable systems for that and, and right. set up you know, ways of, of accounting for those pieces. Yeah, our, our listeners have heard us talk, you know, in a couple episodes about the the criticality of getting offsets right going forward, given some of the challenge that it, challenges, excuse me, that have existed in the past, and you know, offsets of questionable quality and and so forth. So that leads me to you know maybe my last question, which is, you know, when we're thinking about this transition that's underway, and you know, you already mentioned the importance of government in that. You know, what can be done? When we think about this as sort of individuals, how can we help affect change and and enable the aviation industry to to accelerate more quickly to to net zero? So I, I did sort of touch on this earlier, and um, but I think the one big barrier that we have right now is actually stable and effective government policy. It's really important for the government to play a role in this area. I think the role is is really in terms of de-risking the the uh, private capital and the industries to commercialize these technologies. As I had indicated, we have seen some policies that are quite effective that are already stood up. The issues are you know twofold. One is stability of the policy across different administrations, and then secondly is is that some of the policy in place um, in, in the U.S. in particular really prioritizes uh, ground transportation, and especially in the area of uh, renewable fuels. So what's important is at least to have those on even footing, so that right. a producer won't. Um, won't lose money by producing an aviation fuel, which is what happens today. And then lastly, I'd say is more companies sort of following the pathway of Microsoft in starting to own their own carbon emissions and set up programs to do that. And and um, I have no stock in Microsoft, but I'm just impressed by how <laughs> they've how they've worked with the World Economic Forum, how they're. Um, sort of working with um, uh, aviation sector in terms of helping to bridge the cost difference between sustainable aviation fuels and conventional fuels, which is essentially um, buying the environmental services that these fuels provide. And so the more that companies sort of move in this framework of sustainability tenants that are real and effective, um, then that's the, the, you know, the other route of this that comes more from the private sector rather than, say, from governmental programs. Well, you know, it's it's exciting to see, you know, Microsoft taking those measures and, uh, you know, it's certainly something I think all of us as consumers can, you know, shine a light on those companies, not only the ones that are struggling, but the ones that are doing sort of forward thinking work. And, you know, hopefully you see other, you know, the Amazons and the Googles following in, in Microsoft's, you know, footsteps. Well, I, you know, I think we could continue to talk about sustainable aviation for, for longer than, you know, <laughs> longer than this interview. But just wanted to say thank you for making time to come on and talk to us about, you know, the aviation sector, get us a little smarter on, you know, what's being done and what still needs to be done to, you know, to get to a place where we can all hop on that flight and, and feel good from a climate perspective. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me here and thanks for doing this podcast. You know, I, I became aware of it when, um, when, when our mutual friends sort of introduced us to each other and I really enjoyed your episodes. I think you hit the right spot. So thanks for having me on. Happy to help. So gents, uh, what were your, what were your takeaways from, 
our interview with Mike. You know, I was actually surprised to find that when he said that, you know, they could reduce the carbon intensity of the fuel possibly by like 60 plus percent. It sounds like we need to build some pretty expensive facilities to be able to do that. And obviously there's some risks there. I don't think, you know, investors are quite on board with the the tech yet. And, you know, when you start talking about this being about 3%, you kind of wonder, and I know Thomas mentioned this earlier about, is this the the low-hanging fruit that we want to try to get at? Is it a big enough chunk to, to worry about? I mean, I know we've we've talked before about we're going to have to we're going to have to pull the numbers down anywhere we can. And so obviously this is one area to do that. But in other words, clearly we need to cut emissions on all fronts. But yeah, if I'm understanding you correctly, like maybe this is the, when we talk about cutting emissions 50% by 2030, that may not be from aviation. Aviation may end up being the the rest of the emissions we have to cut by 2050. Yeah, it seems like it's it's going to be a little bit of a longer haul. And, and the percentage of what it contributes to the overall greenhouse you know, emissions it's not huge, right? Look, I mean, I think it's one of those things that we've got to accept a, a few laws of physics here. One is that to fly an aeroplane, you need extremely high energy density um, for your power source. And and that's been the struggle with with batteries. You know, right now, we're looking at around, what, 250 watt hours per kilogram. Realistically, to make even short-haul flight viable, you, you've got to be talking north of 400 watt hours per kilogram. So we're still some years away before, um, you know, a lot of these European countries that have got their eyes set and hearts set on, on short-haul domestic flights being done with electric aircraft it's it's still a few years away but long-haul flights for quite some time to come is is going to have to be done with fossil fuels as well not fossil fuels with carbon-based fuels as the primary energy source and you know we've got to accept that making those from renewables is expensive and is going to continue to be expensive for some time to come. So therefore, we should be doing whatever we can to pivot as much air transportation as possible back towards ground transportation where we've already you know, cracked that nut. We've worked out how to make ground-based battery electric vehicles very efficient. So, you know, we, we should, by all means, continue to focus on the development of renewable sources for aviation, but encourage the transit transition wherever possible to ground-based transportation or freight. In other words, that could be in the form of folks having a, a battery, you know, electric car to to go on their, you know, regional vacations or trips. And it could also be taking, you know, money and setting it aside to develop, at least in the US, a real high-speed rail infrastructure so that those, you know, trips between maybe you're not doing a high-speed rail from you know, San Francisco to New York City, but if you're talking LA to to San Francisco or, you know, here in the Northwest from Portland to Seattle, those would be easy trips to make with with high-speed rail and certainly much more efficient. Absolutely. Because, you know, high-speed rail has the the benefit that aviation has in that you've got a whole lot of people stacked one behind the other. Um, so the frontal area of of the train or the aeroplane is is very small you know unlike having a whole bunch of individual cars driving along a highway um and and that's where china really kind of stepped over this whole uh domestic flight problem you know from an emissions perspective that we've run into in the rest of the western world and they spent massively on 
uh, high-speed uh, rail 10 to 15 years ago. Um, and, and because of that, you know, the, the per-person emission costs when traveling between cities in China is significantly less than what we see in the US, Australia, and Europe. Yeah, it, it sounds like, you know, we there's obviously, based on what Mike was sharing, like some really promising technologies, and we need to continue with those. But I think, to both your points, rethinking how we travel and being smarter about, you know, how we do it has a big impact, right? And that, that gets almost, in a way, at what he was saying when he was talking about the three different ways that we're trying to reduce the emissions with aviation. And one of those is how you operate the planes. Well, operating the planes less and substituting that with, you know, driving an electric car or, you know, taking high-speed rail is, is one vehicle, right? While we continue to work out, you know, ramping up these these biofuels, which we clearly, you know, need more government support there to, to get rid of that financial risk. N- not unlike, you know, we had in the beginning with solar and wind, right? Where you had banks that weren't willing to to step up or reluctantly stepped up to fund projects, it, you know, it seems like a, a not so different situation that we have with, with aviation biofuels is, is being able to take that risk out for the banks so that these projects are able to, to scale up. I think the other thing too, that, um, you know, it has been a bit of a, a silver lining to this whole, you know, coronavirus global pandemic is that people have realized that, you know, they can, holiday locally, there is a lot that they can explore explore within a very short you know, distance from where they live. And we, we've sort of become numb to the fact that when we hop on an airplane to travel to the other side of the world for a two-week holiday, that you know, with 60% of the cost of the ticket being allocated to fuel, that is a massive amount of fuel that we use every time we could do that. If we stopped and thought, well, what, what would it you know, cost me in terms of liters of fuel to drive my car there? That's pretty much what it costs in terms of jet fuel that we're we're pumping into the atmosphere. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, if you're talking, if there was a road, you know, from from US to to Europe, and you had to drive that with your car uh, over the Atlantic Ocean, that would be an expensive trip. Thomas, you might you might know this. Is the idea of an electric plane? Have we theoretically sort of reached the point where we kind of know what the limitation of electric planes are going to be? I mean, there are a, a number of uh, both countries and, and private entities wor- working on that right now. But like, there, there are um, short haul flights. I don't, not sure if they've started yet, but they they were been doing some tests over the last couple of years uh, in British Columbia to to get out to the islands. There, the issue really is that sure, the weight of the electric motors is has come down massively, but but it's the battery energy density that we're still really struggling with. Um, and hopefully in the next few years, if we continue to track the way we are with the energy density improvements, we, we can get there, but it's, mm-hmm. it's sometime out yet. Yeah, it makes sense. It kind of goes back to, you know, a gallon of fuel weighs six pounds, somewhere around that, right? Roughly six pounds. Yeah. And it, it contains the same amount of energy as the battery in my Spark, my Chevy Spark, that yeah. one gallon of fuel does. And that battery weighs 400 and some odd pounds. <laughs> right i mean it's it's super heavy and you know my spark doesn't have to get off the ground <laughs> though so and of course the, the motor's efficient that's why you get you get you know 80 plus miles out of that same amount of energy stored in that gallon of gasoline but it's just a different problem with planes it seems like a, a hard one to solve so 
you know, I think in, in recap, we, you know, listening to Mike, there's clearly some promising work being done in the aviation sector. You know, it's not going to be an easy sector to decarbonize, but there's some great work going on around, you know, biofuels, continuing to, you know, lighten planes, make them more efficient. And it sounds like the the crux is really going to be, you know, getting government to help make putting in more of these these biofuel facilities lower risk so that they can scale up and we can actually start powering a fair amount of the fleet with biofuels. And then, you know, at the same time, rethinking transportation and how we get ourselves around holistically. And, you know, as Thomas mentioned earlier, it's like if you're a solo person traveling across the country, you know, and you otherwise would be driving an SUV, you're you're better to get on that plane. But if you're talking about, you know, a family four going on vacation, driving that fuel efficient car is going to be a much more effective way to go. So I think that leads into, you know, the question of, well, what can we do? And for this week, we'd like to call on folks to send a message to their senators that we need to, you know, take up negotiations again on the Build Back Better bill and getting those climate provisions passed. You know, we have a window in which still to do that, but that's that's getting smaller. And, you know, and every time you get towards election cycles, it's harder to get legislation through. And, you know, it's clear to me, whether we're talking about aviation or anything else, that if the U.S. is going to lead on climate, we need to have robust climate legislation in place. And the Build Back Better bill is our is our opportunity to do that at a federal level. So we'll have talking points on our website to help you with that, but encourage everybody to take the five, 10 minutes max to, to send that note um, to your senator, because the reality is if we all do it, it, it does have a real impact. Well, I think, I think that's a wrap for this week. You know, thanks as always for tuning in. Um, come back next week for more Climate Solutions, Reasons for Hope, and Ways Each of Us Can Make a Difference. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. 